Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Anne Louise Bannon about the latest in her old Los Angeles series, Death of an Heiress. Anne Louise Bannon has written many books, most but not all of them mysteries. Her historical novels include a couple of standalone time travel books and a series set in the 1920s. For more about these, her contemporary Operation Quickline mysteries, and her interest in wine, which she and her husband produce, check out her 2020 New Books and Literature interview, which you can find by searching for her name at newbooksnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, though, we will be chatting about her four books set in Los Angeles in the 1870s, a time when the town was very different from today's sprawling city. Normally, I read the opening passage of the book in question here, but the author asked to do it herself. So please join me in welcoming Anne Louise Bannon. Hi, Anne. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you. Could you get things going, please, by reading those opening paragraphs of Chapter 1? Sure. There was no sound more final than the crack of Judge Whitney's gavel as he struck the bench that morning of May 27, in the year of our Lord, 1872, to end the probate on the estate of one Robert Gaines. I had attended Mr. Gaines as he slipped away to his final reward a month before. His last words were a promise to his loving daughter, Lavina, that she was well provided for. Indeed, when the will was read, Lavina was to inherit half of her father's estate, with the other half going to her older brother, Timothy. Alas, the elder Mr. Gaines had no idea that the brother's greed would hold sway, and in a move so duplicitous, that even Judge Whitney questioned it. Timothy Gaines robbed his sister of her inheritance. The robber was completely legal, which is why Judge Whitney was forced to approve it. For all that his honor might have questioned the younger Mr. Gaines' motives, it was not entirely unreasonable for Mr. Timothy to request that he hold Lavina's bequest in trust until such time as he saw fit to give it to her. Most men lift inheritances to their unmarried daughters in such trust However, most such trusts were generally only to be held until the time of the marriages of said young women, or until they had achieved some age or other. Younger Mr. Gaines had insisted, however, that giving him full discretion over when the inheritance was to be handed over would better protect his sister from fortune hunters, not to mention affording him the opportunity to build up his sister's fortune on her behalf. Had Levina been less sensible and more easily swayed by the attentions of men, I might have been forced to assign some limited merit to that argument. So that raises all kinds of interesting questions, which we're going to get back to in a minute. But let's start with Los Angeles itself. In the 1870s, it was not the megapolis it is today. Uh, what is the Los Angeles of these novels like? It's um, very small, a uh, population around uh, five to 7,000, although it was growing. Uh, we were just about to get 
1872, they were having a lot of arguments about how they were going to uh, get the, where the transcontinental railroad going to the south was going to end up, and they wanted it in Los Angeles for a lot of good reasons. And so it wasn't quite on the, it was on the cusp of the boom that that railroad uh, brought, but it wasn't there yet. It was a very, very violent place. You know, people gripe about L.A. being uh, so violent nowadays. It's anything but. I think we're talking a population of 7,000 and roughly a murder a month, which is compared to the 300 we get all year among a population of, you know, 8 million. That's that's quite a difference. So... um, it was very violent. The, the population, especially among the white people, was mostly transient men, and that's probably what cont- uh, contributed to the violence. Um, there are mostly adobes, although there are a lot. Uh, there, there are uh, brick buildings going in called blocks. Uh, there were also several clapboard houses. I've got a couple of different maps that show varying uh, degrees of adobes and, and uh, mixes of adobes and, and clapboard. So it was it was uh, it was largely an agrarian uh, society. Uh, the richest people there were landowners, obviously, but uh, there were few, and there were attorneys there. But it was a lot of the the stuff was, or a lot of the work there was land sales. Um, a lot of it was all about what people were growing, the ranchos. Uh, so grapes were a significant uh, crop, although it wasn't the largest by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But yeah, I mean, L.A. was pretty much where the California wine industry got its foot in the door. It started in Los Angeles with uh, Jean-Louis Vigne in the uh, 1820s. And so it was not at all unusual for Maddie to have a vineyard and make wine, which was then imported to San Francisco and Napa. So there. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Northern California. (laughs) In your earlier interview with G.P. Gottlieb, you mentioned that your heroine, Maddie Wilcox, is channeling uh, Louisa May Alcott. Uh, It's a great description, very apt. We might push it a bit further and say that Maddie is a Joe rather than one of the other March girls. It seems unlikely that any of our listeners have escaped all exposure to Joe March, uh, but talk about what that association reveals of Maddie's personality. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's kind of like something that happened uh, one of the uh, events in Little Men where, you know, they had that little science speech and the one daughter, uh, um, who's uh, at the school, uh, you know, Joe's niece, is invited to attend. It's because of Joe really having that interest in um, doing reading and thinking and writing, which was very much a man's place in the 19th century. And for Maddie, that would translate to her love of science and her interest in science and healing people and, uh, you know, going to work as an apprentice doctor without her father's knowledge, because God forbid, (laughs) uh, you know, and her mother encouraging her because her mother was a transcendentalist. Her mother probably was a Quaker. So it's uh, Maddie going into those things and then going on to medical college. 
There were two of them, in, at least two. I think there may have been more. Uh, I, I have to double-check my facts on that one. But So Maddie ends up going to Philadelphia because, you know, we can't let her father know that she's going to medical college because he would freak. But a lot of that comes from that whole spirit of independence that Joe March definitely had. And uh, I... I wouldn't have made that comparison, I have to be honest, but I'm glad it turned out it was there. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Yes. Um, These novels are presented as Maddie's memoirs um, and the events recorded as she recollects them after 30 or more years. While detailing her cases, she slips in other parts of her past that influence her response to events but don't affect the mysteries per se. So tell us a bit about what brought her to L.A. from the East Coast. Well, um, it's actually a rather sordid story, but not surprising to the time. Um, As I said, Maddie goes to medical college and uh, couldn't tell her father. Well, at the end of her year there, uh, as she is about to graduate, it was only about a one-year program at the time, her mother died. And she is staying with her aunt in Philadelphia, her mother's sister, but then the aunt also passes away. So while Maddie is able to finish college and get her degree, she has to go back to Boston. But once her father finds out where she's been and what she's been doing, he is infuriated and ashamed because doctors were not very well thought of in the 1870s, you know? Why would you, you know, and, and keep in mind, they're a very wealthy, uh, you know, wealthy family. They're Boston society. And so why would you do something that would involve working with people? And as a doctor, and as a woman, as a doctor. Ah! So he is so horrified that he basically tells Maddie she's going to marry her, his uh, best friend's son. Albert Wilcox, or he is going to put her out on the streets. So Maddie, not being as secure and as, uh, and as comfortable being on her own as she is, obviously, by the time we meet her, she uh, goes and marries Albert Wilcox. And very shortly thereafter, he decides that as a younger son, he's not going to get very far. He's going to make his fortune in California, drags her out to Los Angeles to this little backwater of a town and um, then buys the Rancho de las Flores and the vineyard there. And within a couple months, gets himself struck by lightning. (laughs) Which, you know, Maddie realizes, hey, this is not such a bad thing. And she then takes over the rancho and the, the vineyard and the winery and finds she's actually pretty good of it, and good at it, and then starts helping out more and more with the locals helping to heal and take care of people, which is what women did. You know, it was a charitable thing when Natty uh, initially started. And in fact, she doesn't even refer to herself as a doctor until the middle of uh, Death of the Zon Hero, which is the first book in the series. So... That's what happened. 
Okay, well, that is a great lead-in uh, because through these other uh, events, being a doctor and owning the rancho and the vineyard, she becomes involved in these local uh, crimes, um, even though she's not officially a law enforcement officer. So, well, only it, this, it's a mystery series. Obviously, we don't want to give away um, anything that's significant, but um, the basic ideas of these novels are, are a good way for listeners to think about whether they want to read them, and I sort recommend that they do. Let's start with Death of the Zanjero. Um, and uh, remind us, please, what a Zanjero is uh, and what specifically is she investigating? Yeah, well, L.A. at the time was uh, irrigated by a series of ditches. Uh, Zanja is Spanish for ditch, and there was a big ditch dug off uh, what we call the Los Angeles River, which nobody except people in L.A. would consider a river, but it is a small creek that runs uh, through the city. And it does, did provide most of the water for the Pueblo. And they dug this ditch called the Zanja Madre, or Mother Ditch, off of it. And then the Zanjero, who was the water overseer, uh, was the one you paid your subscription to. And then he'd send his men out to open the sluice gates. The water would rush in. And that's basically what happens in Death of the Zanjero, uh, they're opening up the sluice gates to Maddie's uh, uh, vineyard, uh, or in her Zanha, and the body of uh, Zanjero Burt Rivers floats up out of the water. And uh, he's got a knock on his head, but later finds out, Maddie later finds out he was actually shot. And so at this point, Maddie's really not admitting that she's a doctor, but She's on the edges of society. She has to be nice to them because, quite frankly, they're her customers for the wines. And um, at the same time, she's kind of in a weird position uh, and, and uncomfortable with it. And she starts investigating uh, River's death because initially he's been shot. He's been murdered. Now, keep in mind, this is 1870. There's no such thing as detection as we know it. Uh, law enforcement was more about, you know, especially on the city marshal side, was more about uh, collecting taxes, uh, running down bounties, maybe quelling a fight or two, or usually quelling a fight or two. Um, so it wasn't about investigating crimes. Maddie has no idea what she's doing when she investigates this crime. And, but she's just kind of proceeding as she thinks, well, okay. And, you know, it, she is alerted to the fact that the, uh, that Rivers was actually shot by Angelina Sutton, who is the undertaker's wife. Who, this guy's been shot. Oh, no, what do we do? The guys aren't going to listen to us. I'm going to talk to a woman who will. And, you know, of course, that Maddie and Angelina know each other, maybe not well initially, but they're... Uh, you know, they run into each other all the time because, you know, people die when you're a doctor. You know? So uh, that's how that happens. And next thing you know, Maddie finds herself caught up in, the, in, in, in trying to figure out who killed Burt Rivers and how a woman seen walking the streets of the Pueblo that night might have had anything to do with it. 
She and the local marshal, uh, that is the local police chief, uh, don't exactly hit it off in that first book. And so we're rather rooting against her next victim in Death of the City Marshal. <laughs> what happens in the beginning there? And again, how does it become Maddie's responsibility to solve the crime? <laughs> well, it's a couple of things, actually. Um, first off, Death of the City Marshal is based on a real incident in L.A. history. The first L.A. police chief, William Warren, who was known as the city marshal then, was a real hothead. And uh, he had as a deputy another real hothead named Joseph Dye. And uh, he was shot and, in this case, in reality, killed by Dye in a shootout over in a dis- that was a dispute over a hooker. I kid you not. That really happened. Now, because you can't have a whodunit if you know who done it, I may have posited that something else killed Warren. <laughs> but Maddie get, gets involved because she realizes he was smothered, not shot. I mean, he was shot, but he was going to re- look like he was going to recover. And... Uh, I went to great lengths to make sure that the official record was, it was that uh, there was a good reason why the official record stood and that, but that, yeah, we knew the truth of what actually happened sort of thing. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, Death of the Chinese Field Hands brings crime even closer to home uh, for Maddie. And it also delves into issues of social and racial prejudice in addition to the obvious prejudice against women, uh, which we've been kind of skating around, but we will talk about it in just a minute. Um, Set it up for us, please. Okay, Death of the Chinese Field Hands, um, again, based uh, based on an actual event in L.A. history, possibly the darkest moment of our history, uh, October 24th, 1871, uh, 18 Chinese men were lynched because of the race. Uh, Chinese in uh, L.A. and in California, and most of America, actually, were very, very much looked down on. They were hated. Uh, and uh, frankly, people were scared of them uh, for no good reason, obviously. The Chinese really didn't like the Americans either. But the fact was, if you were poor and in China, you could go to the Golden Mountain, which is what we called, they called uh, California, make money, and then go back home to be comfortable with your ancestors. And so in Death of the Chinese Field Hands, it starts on the night of the riot. Uh, my, uh, Maddie is trying to protect some other Chinese, and but does have three hands that are on her rancho when things start blowing up. So they escape the initial uh, lynching. But uh, a couple, three weeks later, one of her field hands is found in the uh, vineyard strangled. And then another one is strangled elsewhere. And so... Maddie, of course, is furious. She wants to find out who killed these guys. But she wants justice for them. You know, and, and Maddie is one of those people, rare people in the 19th century, and they did exist, that really feels that all people are equal. And um, whereas you didn't get a lot of that, it was a real problem uh, at the time. And it's like I often say, we don't realize just how deeply embedded our issues towards 
uh, you know, racism is in our society, how deeply embedded these attitudes are. And it, we've been fighting these ideas for centuries. And now, you know, so we're, we're not anywhere near this. Racial prejudice was incredibly normalized. So there we are. <laughs> and that's a lot of what we're dealing with and that he's dealing with in uh, Field Hands. Yes, it is. Um, and that brings us to Death of an Heiress, uh, which just came out two weeks ago. Uh, we do meet the heiress right away. Uh, and as I mentioned, the issues of uh, women's rights are really front and center in this one. They've been, in, they've been mentioned all along because they affect Maddie directly and they affect many of the people that she interacts with and her friends. Uh, but here, you can see it from a legal perspective. Um, but despite the title... The heiress, Lavina, is not the first corpse we encounter. Um, so tell us just to briefly about Mama Jane and what has happened to her. Well, we find uh, Mama Jane uh, doesn't quite show up, but she's mentioned in Chinese field hands. She's an old uh, Indian, uh, or Native American, I should say. Uh, they referred to as Indians back then. Uh, she's an old Native American uh, healing woman, or bruja. Now, bruja is Spanish for witch, but in that, in the Hispanic cultures and in other cultures, that often means a woman who is a healer, who has the herbs. Now, Mama Jane does still do some spells and everything, but her big thing is, is helping people. Um, she turns out to be the first corpse. She's been strangled. Uh, it was based on a newspaper clipping. I, I was, you know, because I always read the newspapers of the day so I can because I pulled a lot of stuff from it. And um, there was an inquest held uh, on a young woman, or an old woman, an an old Indian woman who had died of dissipation and exposure. As in, they assumed she was a drunk. And I went, wait a minute, I got to do something with that. (laughs) And in fact, there is a scene in Eris where Maddie reads that bit in the newspaper and just gets so disgusted because she knows Mama Jane was really strangled and is trying to find out what's going on. And uh, Lavina, of course, is present and involved. I one of the things I really had to wait on letting her go. A, I like her a lot. She was a great character. I really felt bad. I bumped her off. But um, I also wanted people who Lavina was, you know, not just these glimpses of her as she, she showed up first in Death of the City Marshal. Uh, she's also in uh, Chinese Field Hands and, in fact, has the key to the whole uh, mystery. But Lavina is, um, I had to, you know, I couldn't assume that people had read those, so I wanted people to see what was being lost. And what was being lost was this eminently sensible, very kind young woman. So we can really see Maddie's grief and her anger when she's robbed of her inheritance by her rotten brother. Yes, I have to say I was sorry to see Lavina go. She was really a great friend for Maddie. Um, but, you know, that's part of the, um, the thing that authors do is once in a while we kill off somebody, even if it's somebody that we like. Um, so Maddie can't spend all her time detecting, though, because there's a measles epidemic in the Pueblo. Um, now, I grew up in a time when there were still 
you know, people still got measles. I got measles. My siblings got measles. Um, but I don't think many people, even though there are these occasional outbreaks, I'm suspecting that many of our listeners have never actually encountered a case of measles and don't have a clear idea of what that's like. So give us a quick look at what it means in 1872, especially from the perspective of a doctor. Well, uh, measles, the basic symptoms of the measles are uh, they're very similar. It's a virus, so surprise, surprise. Uh, there's, you know, fever, uh, sneezing, coughing, and that, and the rash. And the rash can get pretty itchy. Uh, for those of us who remember chicken pox, that same sort of thing. Um, the interesting thing about the measles is most kids, the vast majority of children, manage it quite nicely, as Maddie notes. And really, there's not a lot she can do except provide a salve and then start dealing with the, uh, the complications, which is exactly what Maddie's doing. In the very young, you're going to have complications of seizures and pneumonia, especially in older patients. For some reason, the complications are much more uh, likely and more severe in older patients. So... Um, it's it's one of those things that well okay it's it's a childhood disease it's for vast majority of children it's not that big a deal but for a doctor it can be and the thing that was interesting it really was a measles outbreak in the pueblo the newspaper account literally says well attendance is down at the schools probably because because of the measles outbreak thankfully few have died boy did that one leap leap out <laughs> Because And because Maddie's going to be dealing with the cases that are complicated, because you're not going to call the doctor for a basic case of the measles. And if the kids are fine, you're, you know, they're just going to go through it, and that's what you do. But she's seeing the complications, so she's dealing with the lovely three-year-old child that passes away, the, the young woman who uh, gets uh, uh, pneumonia really badly and passes away. And keep in mind, people die in the 19th century far more frequently than they do now. They were dropping like flies. So, uh, you know, I, I joke about that, but that really, it was a reality, a medical uh, practice at the time is, you know, we only know so much. <laughs> we're going to expect some of our, uh, 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 some of our patients, or a lot of our patients are going to die. That's it. And so she's, She's dealing with it. She's dealing with some of the frustrations of, you know, perfectly nice children getting it. But at the same time, there's nothing she can do about it any more than there is now, by the way. The one thing we can do is get vaccinated. Right. Um, and I was going to ask you about the death of Julia Carson, which is another medical issue of current relevance, and as it turns out, a lot more current than I think any of us expected. Um, but in order to avoid spoilers, I'm going to skip over that um, and ask you uh, instead, because we're not going to talk about the connections between these deaths either. Uh, so let's instead go back to Lavina, the heiress. Um, tell us a bit more about who she is and um what are the circumstances that make it clear that this was a murder? Uh, I'm talking about specifics here, not the actual explanation, which would give us the clue to the killer. Oh, okay. No, um, the thing with Lavina, um, she started, uh, you know, as I said, she made her first appearance in, in Death of the City Marshal, and she really, again, it was another newspaper thing. Robert Gaines was announcing to the world and sundry that he was no longer going to pay the debts 
of his daughter, Lavina. You know, so if Lavina puts him on my tab, I'm not panicked. And I was really intrigued by that. Well, next thing I know, Lavina turns out to be this very nice young woman who's not prone to taking advantage of her father, but her father, and I gave her a reason for doing so, and, and she just kind of grew on me, which was kind of unfortunate when I eventually had to kill her. But uh, she just kind of grew on me as a character and turned out to be this lovely, eminently sensible young woman who is plagued by this bombastic, hold-themselves father. Uh, Robert Gaines was not a nice character in either City Marshal or uh, uh, Field Hand. And a brother who is pretty much his father's son. So, you know, that there was rapprochement between uh, Levina and her father right before her father's passing, I thought was really important that there be that happen. So, you know, Levina turns up missing. And is found the next morning with the same uh, marks on her throat that are on Mama James. And and Maddie, who is looking for the person, Julia Carson um, comes into it because Levina was trying to help Julia and thinks that there may be a monster, rapist, uh, preying on the women, of, young women of the Pueblo, but doesn't know who. And so because of that, Maddie thinks that's got to be who's coming after, uh, that's who killed Levina and who killed Mama Jane, but why? You know, it's very, very confusing for her. And this is where we really see the um, restrictions put on women, because Lavina is actually, she's from a wealthy family, she's educated, um, She in our world she would probably have a career, and she she is, as you say, intelligent and sensible, and yet plagued by her father and brother in, in multiple ways. Oh yeah, she's expected to be a nice girl. I mean, and it's just, you, you deal with the men in your life, you don't necessarily you know, you may not like it, but that's what life is. Women, particularly in the 19th century, late 19th century, women were starting to get some strides, take some strides. But women, uh, to the Victorian mindset, were essentially children. And if you're a young, unmarried woman, you had, you know, you you might as well have been a five-year-old. Nobody was going to trust you with being able to think or to speak uh, Lavina reads, but she's probably not educated. Um, she wouldn't have been, she would have, she would have gone to school for a certain amount of years, to, but that's with the idea that she's going to be the helpmeet to her husband, not because we expect her to go out and have a career or learn anything. Uh, that she's willing to take a teacher's test. That's the, the extent of the education she was going to get. And Again, as a teacher, she would not have had a lot of uh, pull because, you know, she was going to be taking care of small kids. Well, they don't count for much anyway. You've got to toughen up and survive first. And so she doesn't have any agency whatsoever. Uh, Even women who were married didn't have a lot of agency. They, everything was raising the children, keeping your husband's home nice, now, they may have found ways to get around it, certainly. There were plenty of them who were manipulative as all get out because that was the only way you could function. But there was the man's world, 
and there was the home. It is also, interestingly enough, one of the reasons why Maddie was able to become a doctor and that doctors, women doctors, while they were not common by any stretch, and they were looked on as unwomanly or unsexed, the reality was it was sort of okay because taking care of children, taking care of the sick was one of women's duties. So if you became a doctor on top of that, well, that's that. So that's the world they were living in. So Lavina, as an unmarried woman, has no agency. She's utterly at the mercy of her brother and initially her father. Most women were utterly at the mercy of their men. Uh, that also becomes an issue in Eris when they're looking, uh, you know, when the, the, you know, women are, get syphilis from their husbands, which happens all the time. Guys would go, you know, hanging out and tomcatting around and bring home all sorts of interesting little bugs. And women, the the wives had to just deal with it. So perhaps uh, given that situation, this next question or the answer to this next question is not that surprising. But it did interest me that whereas it's quite common to see pairs of detectives, especially if a woman is sort of taking the lead, um, Maddie doesn't do that. She is still a relatively young woman. Um, she has a few flirtations, uh, but she has not developed her romantic male lead. And since we're four books in, I'm guessing that that's not an accident. Um, and in fact, she enjoys the independence that comes from widowhood. So I wanted to ask why you chose to set up the series that way. Well, uh, again, through much of history, if a woman was going to have any agency, she was going, it was going to happen as a widow especially if she was relatively young uh, and her husband had property. Uh, if there were kids involved, um, she'd have it at least until the boys were old enough to take over. And so I very consciously made Maddie a widow. I wanted somebody who could be reasonably expected to investigate a crime. Um, who could be reasonably expected to manage her own affairs and not have to constantly be running home to cook dinner, which is a problem her friend Angelina has. I've got to go see my husband's lunches ready. I've got to go take care of my husband. And it was, uh, so I, I very purposely did it that way. As Maddie often says, I have no use for, I have had and have no use for a husband. And, um, there may be a romantic male coming up, not in the next book, maybe, but maybe two or three down. Um, that's assuming you decide to keep things that way and not bump them off. But <laughs> it's, uh, but the thing is, Maddie is, uh, she's just a very solid woman. She's a strong woman. And having a man around really, especially in this time of uh, our, our history, Really would have put a crimp in that. <laughs> so. She does, however, have an active community around her, starting with her partners and employees on the rancho and extending into the Pueblos. So tell us a bit about the Ortiz brothers and their families. Well, there had to be servants. You know, she couldn't possibly have managed that ranch on her own. And there would have been anyway, even if, you know, Albert had lived. So that she comes to see them as friends and partners, uh, in Zanjero is where that happened, made sense to me. 
some of it was her transcendentalist mother's tradition. Um, another reason why I think I, sus- I suspect her mother was probably a Quaker, and I'm just, uh, you know, Maddie's kind of like, okay, maybe she was. I don't know. She would not, at being a nice society lady, her mother would never have admitted to being a Quaker. But um, she definitely has those values of equality, and we're all the same and all that. So the fact that Sebastiano and Enrique are uh, Hispanic really doesn't enter into it. Maddie's learned to speak Spanish for crying out loud. And I think the other fun part was is how it happened that they started using each other's Christian names was because every time Maddie would call for Senor Ortiz, the brother she didn't want would show up. <laughs> so you have to. So Sebastiano works closest with, uh, the most closely with uh, um, with Maddie. He's the older of the two, and he is definitely he and her are definitely winemakers together. Enrique runs the vineyard, and he is he's the viticulturalist, as we would say nowadays. And uh, he he likes growing things. But they have families because people did have their families. They did have them on the ranchos. So there there's the, the women participate in the caring of the household. And Maddie has the children's best interests at heart. She's teaching them because we're not going to trust the American teachers to teach them. Um, they're, you know, actually Anita, uh, one of the other wives on the, on the uh, rancho, does but it's just a very solid family and um there's a lot you know something once remarked that i in most of my work families always seem to be cropping up everybody all my characters have families and she was absolutely dead on right well in this case enrique and the ortiz brothers and the rest of the uh work hands are maddie's family and she's very close to juanita alvarez who is her uh uh, maiden train, uh, 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 waiting maid, you know, the gal that dresses her in the morning and everything. She's very close, and, and they're very, very close to each other and are friends, which is, you know, becomes an issue in, in uh, Von Hero. So that's their story. <laughs> so there are lots of other lovely characters um, for uh, reader, listeners and readers to discover. Uh, well, I guess they'd have to go from being listeners to being readers to discover the characters. Um, but since I've already taken up a lot of your time, uh, I'd like to ask you, what would you like people to take away from Death of an Heiress and its predecessors? Uh, just how far we've come as a society in terms of racism, in terms of sexism and things like that. Not that we don't have a long ways to go. Women and people of color do not have full equality in our society. Uh, There's far too much hatred out there. But if we understand just how deeply embedded those attitudes have been in our past, maybe we can say, okay, we can conquer this. Let's look at how far we've come from the... uh, 1870s and attitudes towards the Chinese and towards blacks and look at how different they are now. Some of it hasn't changed, but a lot of it has. Uh, You know, we don't question women having the vote or whether women should even be allowed to vote. We don't even question their humanity anymore. We question a lot of other things. We try to repress a lot of ways, but we have come a long way from the way it used to be. 
And that, to me, is an amazing source of hope. You know, we can get on top of this. We can better ourselves as a society and, and be more loving and, and more open to other people and, and more gracious to those who are not like us, not just more gracious to those, but share and learn from those who are not like us. That's what I hope people will get. I mean, let's put it this way. That's as close to a sermon as I'm going to get. Because <laughs> I also want people to just sit down with a nice story and kick back and have a good time. And they will certainly do that if they read these novels. Um, the end of your book hints at another Maddie Wilcox adventure. Is that what you're working on now? Uh, yeah, not quite. <laughs> I'm actually finishing an Operation Quick Light story, and I mean hopefully in the next two days, <laughs> because I'm really close to the end, and as soon as we hang up, I'll go work on that. But yeah, uh, starting next week, I'm going to be beginning my research phrase on Death of the Town Drunkard for uh, book five. That's going to take place at Christmas in 1872. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Anne, and I wish you luck with that novel that you want to uh, punch out in the next two days. That's a really <laughs> tight time frame there. Oh, no, no, I, I, I'm really almost to, you know, word, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm well, I'm literally within a few bullet points at the end, so, <laughs> but yeah, I'm kind of like, yeah, I gotta go doing it. Uh, so, yeah, but thank you. I, I really thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Those were fun questions. I really had a good time. Oh, good. I did, too. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Anne Louise Bannon about Death of an Heiress. Find out more about her at www.annelouisebannon.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplosi.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.